This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm Norman B. Coming up later in the show, a conversation about birds. Yeah, that's right. Birds, right in your own backyard. Joan E. Strassman is an award-winning teacher of animal behavior, and she has a new book, Slow Birding, The Arts and Science of Enjoying the Birds in Your Own Backyard. First, I'm so very pleased to welcome back to the program Phil Allen Jr. We had him on the show a few weeks back to talk about his new book, The Prophetic Lens, The Camera and Black Moral Agency. From MLK to Donella Frazier. Phil Allen, welcome back to Life Elsewhere. Thank you for having me. Great to be back, man. One of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, because we, when we were last talking, we didn't get around to talking about two subjects that are very, very important for you, and that is education and religion. I want to start with the last topic, religion, because there's a number of things that come across in your book that suggest to me, and in fact, there's one part, I mean, I, I, I'm, I was going to read it out, but I'm going to ask you, maybe you can just talk to me about it in your words, and that is about how there's this idea that Jesus was a white man with, a, with long hair and a beard. Can you talk about that from your perspective? Yeah, um, th- that is... Uh something I've been talking about a lot lately. You know, when we go back to antiquity, um, just from the research I've been doing, particularly for my dissertation, uh, we, we see this theme, the, with it, what some would say proto-racism, proto-racist themes of light versus dark, white versus black, um, the Greek and Roman thinkers, the way that they spoke about um, Ethiopians, dark-skinned, Nubians, dark, darker-skinned Africans, as compared to their own, um, and you start to see the makings of white supremacy um, um, before there was a term white supremacy or racism. Uh, you started to see the narrative start to unfold because dark skin was associated with evil. Yeah. Um, people would, uh, if you if you go back to um, Greek and Roman philosophers, if you go back to the church early early church fathers you see this theme of uh, the devil in dreams depicted as an African, as an Ethiopian. Um, sexual deviance attached to the Ethiopians, the same narratives that we hear today, right? And so it, for me, when because that is starting to, to, to be formed, this idea of European supremacy, it, it's no surprise that they co-opted a brown-skinned Jewish man and made him fair skin, blonde hair, long hair, blue eyes. Um, and I think it was intentional. I think it was done um, to fit the, the narrative of white supremacy, to kind of cement that, to say that God looks like us. Yes. Um, and, and to present God in any other way um, would, would disorient those Christians and Catholics who, who believed that, who bought into that ideology. Yes. As we're talking, Phil, we're just a few days away from the midterm election. And something that is coming up 
uh, all too frequently, and you're probably very aware of this, is that the GOP is focusing on crime. But it's not just crime. They are using images, photographs, videos, grainy photographs and grainy video images of what it appears to be nothing but African-Americans committing crime. It seems to be strange in this respect. It is also strange in that there's this accusation that the elites on the West and East Coast, that's where the crime is happening, not in the Midwest. But all, of course, this has been debunked. This is not true. Crime is going up in lots of places, but specifically in the GOP-run states, which is kind of odd when you think about it. I'd just like to get your take on this, because this is, this, and it ties back in with what we're talking about religion, is that there is this, I mean, it's, it's just blatant racism, yet I think most people that are seeing this kind of propaganda don't consider it to be racism whatsoever. No, um, it, it's it's a it's an age old um, tactic strategy. Even in my book, I, I talk about how seeing the images of black men. I don't know if I shared this the last time I was on, but the images of black men on the news always committing crimes. Yes. And when when that is shown over and over again, you internalize it, and it caused me to be afraid of going to that particular city, Charleston, South Carolina, when I was a kid, I didn't know any better. And as I got older, I, I, I realized that that's not necessarily the case. So, so the, the strategy is still happening. It's, it's never stopped. It's never in my lifetime, it's never ended. But you go back to Birth of a Nation, you go back to even before Birth of a Nation, the cartoons that depict um, Black people in, in these caricatures of ourselves, either as buffoons or as threats. Even, even if, you, if you wanted to make anyone be a threat, the Irish were depicted as having African features. The, the Irish, when they were being persecuted, as having African features. So, so, that, so we, we represent threat. So the reason why a lot of people, I believe, um, don't think it's racism. They don't understand. They don't want to. They don't want to. For one, I think because if you if you admit this, then you have to look at the whole picture. You have to look at the country. You have to look at media. You have to look at government. You 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 no longer have this ideal American exceptionalism. You have to account for this culture of, of racism. And the other part I think is is lack of imagination. The coded language racism has morphed and changed over the years. After slavery, there's no more racism. They're not enslaved. Well, slavery wasn't the only reason, isn't the only expression of racism. And then after Jim Crow, well, there's no more Jim Crow. There's no more whites only. So there's no more racism. Well, it took on the form of mass incarceration. It took on the form of hiring practices. It took on, the, it, you had de facto redlining still going on. So it doesn't surprise me that people can't identify. But part of it is they don't want to, because I have seen, and I've had experiences with my with white brothers and sisters, white friends of mine, who at one point could not see it. After having conversations, after pausing, and rather than defending 
just listening, reading, paying attention, immersing yourself on, on, on it from my perspective. And they come to this realization like, man, I never, I never saw this. I never got it. I never knew it. So now yeah. they can make the connection. So part of it is you have to want to see the subtleties, the, the craftiness of racism, of white supremacy. And not everyone wants to. Circling back in the religious aspects of this, I'm curious, in the African-American community, in the churches, was Jesus ever portrayed with long hair and fair skin? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so think about the internalization of messaging. Yeah. I know some black folks who will fight you if you say that Jesus is not white. If you challenge the white Jesus, there's some who have internalized that messaging so much because it's disorienting. If you change the look of Jesus, the ethnicity of Jesus, what else about my faith must I now confront and question? Yes. yes. So I've once said the church will not change its stance until it changes its picture of Jesus. Until Jesus is black. And I don't mean black in terms of darker skin. I mean, marginalized. Until Jesus is seen as truly as that person from the margins. As the threat that he was to Rome. The church won't change its, its, its stance. And so even, even in Africa, people will fight you. I'm being a little, little I'm joking a little bit, but. They, they will defend a white. Yeah. And I don't understand it other than the fact that it's the internalization of the messaging. And to change that is so disorienting that it will cause you to have to question so much about your faith. And that, be, that creates instability. And yeah. we need to be certain about things when it comes to faith, even though there's so much mystery. <laughs> let's get into faith. And let's get into Phil Allen's faith. You're a religious man, I understand. You you believe. Yeah. Can you talk about that from your own, from Phil Allen's point of view? Yeah, you know, I, I share with people, my faith, I did not come to faith um, in a church setting. Even though I grew up in the church as a kid, I tell people when I left, when I graduated from high school, I graduated from the church. I never went back right. <laughs> for, for, for at least a decade. Maybe a couple of times I would show up, but I just did not. It wasn't, I, I didn't believe. My faith came because of encounters that I call supernatural encounters with God. So I'm not, my faith is not built on doctrine. It's not resting on um, what happens in the church. There is, there, is, <laughs> there is such an encounter with the Lord, even after I came to faith, that it's unshakable for me. So my first encounter looking back when I when I really turned to the Lord, I was after playing basketball, I was basically homeless. <sighs> and I was in a bad, I was in a rock bottom place. Yeah. I thought I, I, thought I was going to go play pro, pro ball and that didn't happen. So now who am I? And I got on the phone on the pay phone back then, it's pay phones. I got on the payphone. I talked to my mom on the phone. My mother said these words to me. She said, son, go home to South Carolina. I was living in North Carolina. 
go yeah. home to South Carolina or come stay with me. She was in Maryland. I promise you, I can't explain this. What I heard was over the top of her voice, I heard yeah. son come home. She said, son, go home, either go home or come to Maryland. Yes. Come, come stay with me. I heard like a over the top of her voice. Yes. Son, come home. And I broke. I went home, got a ride home that weekend and my life turned around. Now I still struggled with faith because I didn't have any mentorship teaching. I just, I was different on the inside. I couldn't enjoy the things I used to enjoy. My issue was alcohol, women, and parties. Yes. I would still do some of those things, but I could never enjoy them. And then fast forward, when I really got the call to ministry full time, I won't go into detail, but there were several encounters that shaped me to this day. Like I remember them like they're yesterday. And they were not bad encounters. A couple of them were bad encounters, like demonic presence. And then the presence of God would, 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 would overwhelm me in that space through prayer and worship, singing. Um, there would just be this presence that just was over, this overwhelming peace. I had several of those encounters. And then there were times when I would have revelation, prophetic revelation of something is going to, this thing is going to happen, um, and then it happens. Stuff like that, man. I mean, some people may still not believe that, but but I've had such profound, probably about three or four profound, not, not like dozens. Some people have, they think they encounter God daily. They have these supernatural encounters daily. Four or five, maybe. But they were so profound, they shaped me. And doctrine... A sermon doesn't do it. Being in church didn't do it. Those things, intellect, those things didn't do it for me. These were in one-on-one -on -one in my apartment, no one around, encounters that I can't explain. You've just led me to something that I was going to ask you anyway. You just mentioned about daily encounters. And I was wondering, Phil, about how your faith manifests itself in your daily routine yeah so now it's, it's changed over the years as i've matured and grown and um so for me my spiritual disciplines are integrated into my life when i run that's a spiritual discipline for me yeah i mm. go for a jog i put my headphones on i put music on and it's me and i feel you know in, in pasadena you have the mountains the mountain range yeah it's you go to the rose bowl it's beautiful and i feel connected there um, but also daily when i have opportunities to to be a blessing to someone else uh, i have a lot of i don't call it i don't i won't say friends but i i know quite a few homeless people around the city i see them i let them know i see them by speaking to them ah uh -huh. Yes. Sometimes I get a chance to ask him what's their name. Um, if I'm jogging, sometimes actually, some of the, the kindest people are homeless. Yes. The ones that everyone's afraid of. Those are the, the how how my faith shapes up when I'm able to help someone 
buy someone something to eat, have a conversation with them, um, affirm them, bless them, let them know I see them. Those are the times when I have those encounters that make me, it just fires me up. Do you right. do you think to yourself, because there's this, I guess, an old sort of almost, I think it is biblical saying that there for the grace of God go I. Do you, do you think in those terms? Um, if I understand you correctly, um, are you saying embodying that, that I'm embodying? No, I'm uh, saying when you're looking, when you're looking at uh, um, people that are unfortunately homeless as you pass them when you're jogging, do you say to yourself, that could be me? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, I never lived on the street homeless. I had some place to. Yes. But absolutely. Um, I have seen, I've seen people and I've said that, that, that I was moments away from being there. Yes. Um, Phil, on, on just on a lighter note, I've, I can't miss the opportunity of asking you this. When you're jogging, when you're going for a run, you've got your headphones on. What are you listening to? I may listen to worship music depending on the day, depending okay. on what's going on in my day, but I have a list of old school and some new school, but I love 90s hip hop and R&B. Okay. So I, I I have a list. I play it over and over again, but I will have some songs, some newer songs that give me that same vibe, that same. Yeah, feel. yeah, sure. And I, and, and it, I, it was interesting is there's their mid tempo to slow songs. Yes. Not and they're great for jogging too. Yeah, because they keep me mellow. I love that you said '90s, old school of '90s. It's going to date me because I think back to my music, my record collection of the '70s and the '80s, particularly of the R&B music that I've, I've passionately collected over the years. So there are some yeah. '70s and '80s in there too. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, all right. I'm talking to Phil Allen Jr. His book is called The Prophetic Lens, The Camera and the Black Moral Agency from MLK to Darnella Frazier. We've had uh, Phil on the program before, and I asked him to come back on because I wanted to follow up some, some areas that we really didn't have time to get into last time around. One of the things that we uh, are talking about right now is religion and, and Phil's um, take on religion and how it affects his life, as we've just heard. But I also want to now move to slightly over towards something which is sort of connected to religion, but it's education, something which you're very, very passionate about. So just in a few words, just tell my audience what your take on education is right now. Here we are in 2022. What does Phil Evans have to say about education? I think it is of utmost importance. Um, that was ingrained in me as a kid. Um, education, my parents, my grandparents, I wasn't allowed to make, if I made more than one C, if I made a C, I got in trouble. If I made more than one C, I was grounded. I had to make A's and B's. Um, they preferred all A's, but I got lazy sometimes. But education is very important. And, and, and the biggest part of it is, is history. Ah, yes. We don't know our history. I remember going to, visiting Auschwitz in Poland and the concentration camp and there's a sign outside of one of the barracks by George Santa. I think it's George Santayana. It says he who forgets the past is condemned to, to uh, repeat it. Yes. Yes. And I think that we see that happening regularly here today. We, we hear the same rhetoric. 
We see some of the same actions. We even see some of the same, some laws that are taking us back um, to a time uh, before. But there's so many people who are, who are ignorant, for lack of a better term. Um, they live within their own sphere, their life, their context, detached from history as if where they are just it just appeared everything that i do respond to and or see i'm looking at it in the con in the, through the lens of history someone can make a comment to me that may bother me and my friend especially if, if my friend is white can't understand why it bothers me yes and i have to educate them on let me take you back to the 50s and 40s and 30s when that very comment this is what that meant or a gesture on the street the way people take up space let me take you back to a time when as a black man i had to move off the sidewalk to let even a white kid not me that not my time but as a black man they had to get off the sidewalk and let even a, a white kid walk by yes they could not they had to move. So that gesture, that thing that that person did as we walked down the sidewalk, the way they took up space, reminds me of that history. It's not just a thing that they did. So all that to say this, education, but particularly historic history, historical um, information, we are so ignorant of as, as, a, as a culture. And we're repeating so many things. So I hear people all the time say, where are we, what is, what is this world coming to? And I'm like, what do you mean? What are we coming to? We've been here. Yes. You just didn't know it. And until we're willing to embrace history and not be afraid of it, um, I think we're going to continue to repeat many of the cycles. Do you think that, that, well, let me start this again. Because of the run up to this election, and just the political climate, the topic of slavery has has come up once again, like it like it does every so often, and people start really sort of like delving into it, and becomes this. It's become this sort of topic recently, in the last couple of years, about whether whether slavery in great detail should be taught in public schools in this country. Now, I'm not going to ask your opinion on that, but I'm wondering why there is such a debate on this. Why is there? And one of the things that I was reading about this topic the other day, and, and, and somebody made the point how Germany, after the Second World War, didn't deny what had happened. They didn't deny Hitler and Nazis and concentration camps. In fact, it became a big part of education and still is to this day, as far as I understand. But in America, it does appear that slavery is kind of like, it's just kind of washed to one side, not even washed. It's kind of like, it's like kind of mentioned here and there, but it's, it's really not part of history lessons in schools. Why do you think, I mean, I know why you think, I guess I'm answering for you, but I'm curious to know, uh, I, I really want to get your opinion, I don't want to talk over you, but it, it just seems like a, such a weird thing. It seems such a strange thing, because it's part 
of the fundamental basis of this country, the, the growth of this country, the buildings that, that stand in Washington, D.C., for goodness sake. You know, here I am in, in Florida, which has its own set of all kinds of strange stories. But I, but Phil, we, this is weird. I guess I, I, I'm, 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 I don't want to confuse you, but this is weird that it's not addressed in, in just like history should be addressed. Yeah. You know, what's more fundamental to the United States is it's per the perception, the ideal perception of American exceptionalism. And if I were to narrow it even more, um, white American benevolence, goodness, um, America being the city on the hill, this God-ordained place, um, that is more fundamental for, unfortunately, many white Americans. Uh, when I say white, it doesn't have to be white people. It could be white thinking African Americans, yes, Latinx, Asian, yes. Um, but but white thinking people, people who have embraced that that worldview and, and the ideology, consciously or not, of white supremacy, because that is fundamental. That. There's a relentless effort to preserve that and in yeah. doing so to preserve whiteness. Again, whether they're doing it intentionally or not is irrelevant to me, but it is happening. It, it's, it's what's happening. And so to talk about the under the, the ugliness of slavery, all of it, to read the slave narratives, to see the images of the whelps on the backs, to, to think about slave breeding, the rape of enslaved women, the, con the, the American conscience can't handle that. Right. Doesn't want to. So while slavery is so fundamental to the, 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 this country, what's more fundamental is the preservation of American exceptionalism, God-ordained land and people. Right. And so that's 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 what we have without admitting it, without naming it. That's what you have. Um, I think it should be age appropriate. I think you should tell as much of a for however, whatever age you, you start in elementary school. You, but as you get older, you, you, you tell more. You tell more, but you tell the truth. And, and someone uh, said this once. To talk about history and slavery in the past is not to condemn white people. One is to tell the truth of history. It happened. But not only that, you also have abolitionists. You have anti-slavery white people. Why not give a gen this generation and, and moving forward an opportunity to identify with them? Not just the slave owner but the ones who risked their lives. In the civil rights movement, we talk about the white folks and the Jewish people who were in solidarity with, with African-Americans who risked their lives. We can do the same thing with slavery and give them an opportunity to identify with, with, with that group as well. Do you think, and this is, might sound like a bit of an odd question, but do you think this... And I'm trying to think of the right way to say this, but do you think this sort of denial, this kind of 
focus on exceptionalism and 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 just not wanting to to deal with the truth about slavery and everything that goes along with that is why we have such divide in this country right now why we have this this tribalism this hate towards the other side and and, and to the other in quotes can we trace this back? And, I, and, I, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, but can, can we trace this back to this, uh, this thing that we have with not dealing with the reality? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, going, again, that narrative, othering people, assigning meaning to them based on outward appearance, defining who, who they are in terms of character and essence, yeah, that's traced back thousands of years. Yes. So when we start to try to undo this, we're trying to undo thousands of years of an ideology that's been passed on that has transcended geography and made it to this place. Yes. And then now the erasure of history to cement that that ideology to rather than to disrupt it and confront it, they would rather erase history or the, the the part of history that would would, would expose that um where yeah this, this detachment from reality this dissonance cognitive dissonance is at, is partly at the root of why we are where we are very um, quick one i want to get as many questions in here before we run out of time phil as always um as we, as I keep saying, and I think it's important to, to, to mention this, that the, the midterm elections are coming up in just a few days. Herschel Walker, I don't really want to focus in on this particular man, but he does seem to represent something which is fundamentally wrong. And I'd just like to get your opinion, not necessarily of him, but of how do we get, once again, it sort of leads back to the two areas we've been talking about. But how do we get to a point where we have a man that is clearly not not fit for 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 office? But am I, am I reading this correctly? Because it's not about the man. Yeah. It's about what he represents. Right. So now you get to check off two boxes. You have a black face with and with white thought, conservative thought. Um, so now you he can possibly and he's and he's famous. He's beloved as an athlete. So now he can probably grab a few African-American votes because he represents physically. This is not about, this is about power. Everything is about power and every person is a tool, a pawn, an instrument to acquire or retain power. This is not about his, his whether he's fit for office or not. It's not about his policies. He can't even really express those um, articulately. It's not about any of that. It's no. about how do we maintain power? And one GOP candidate admitted that. Too. This is about power. We are willing. I don't care if he uh, aborted uh, baby something, she said. It's about maintaining power. It's about getting back power. Yes. And that's what it is. And so he represents a tool. He's a yes. tool to accomplish that. I know this is going off a little bit. But I do want to get your take on on the the fact that we do have an election coming up in in a couple of days' time. 
I just want to get Phil Allen's opinion of why this is so important. I mean, we're at a, another crossroads in this country and we have to um, select representatives that are going to lead us in one direction or another. In 2016, we took that for granted and we elected a president that had a history of racism, sexism, uh, any ism you can think. Crooked, corrupt history as a businessman. And yet he was chosen anyway. And I think it, led, it, it opened up a door and led us down a path, but he also exposed um, what we thought was dormant in terms of um, hate, um, white supremacy, um, bigotry on all levels. He exposed that. He, he gave it permission to, 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 to be enlivened again and be bold. And so this election, it may not be the presidency, but we have people in office that has his DNA, yes. running, running for office that has his DNA. And we have people that are willing to confront that and challenge that. And it's important that we voice what direction do we want to go in as a nation. Now, mm. we will be split 50-50 pretty much. That's why I, I laugh when we say the United States of America. We're actually the divided states of America. Yes. You know, yes. every election is about 50-50. But we, we do have an, an obligation to let our voices be heard and decide what direction do we really want to go. Such good point. Phil, I say this. I said this the last time. I'm going to say it again. I love talking to you. We, I, I, I'm thinking that we could just make this a regular thing where we just uh, chat. But I'm also thinking that maybe we should put together, you put a playlist together and I'll put a playlist together. <laughs> and maybe we'll have a little DJ session. How's that sound? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, man. <laughs> I have been talking to Phil Allen Jr. And I highly, highly recommend that you check out his book, the prophetic lens, the camera and black moral agency from MLK to Darnella Frazier. Phil, as always, an absolute delight talking to you. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Likewise, man. I love having conversation with you, man. I love it. Thank you, Phil. Appreciate it. Now, don't forget, you can learn all about the books and music we feature on Life Elsewhere over at lifeelsewhere.co. Now, coming up, did you know that some birds are serious philanderers? Animal behaviorist Joan E. Strassman will join me to talk about the sexual escapades of birds and much more, all in your own backyard, right after this. Thank you for listening to Life Elsewhere, hosted by Norman B. To learn more about our program, our guest, and the music we feature, go to lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. My guest is Joan E. Strassman. Her book is Slow Birding, the Art and Science of Enjoying the Birds in Your Own Backyard. Joan, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Thank you. I'm going to say to you, first of all, and I don't use this word very often, but what's a charming book. It, it, it is such a delightful read. It really is. Thank you for writing it. 
I'm just delighted that you liked it. It's a labor of love, and it only took me about 30 years to finally do it. <laughs> you know, I didn't know it took you that long, but it comes across as if you every page is full of information, and it really comes across, as you say, like a labor of love. It, it, it's almost, I would say, a passion. It really does. As an example, if you wouldn't mind, I'm just going to not quote you, but just going to check out some things that you say. This is under The Great Egret, that chapter on The Great Egret. And this sums up a number of things that I like about your book so much. You, you're observing a great egret, and it's standing perfectly still as they do. And then you describe how just because it's standing still doesn't mean it's not doing anything. And you go in on to describe what it's doing, how it does it, how it collects the fish, and then takes, I think you say, at least 30 fish back to its nest to feed its young. Now, the important part here is you tell us all this in just a few lines, and it's wonderfully written. Then you tell us that you don't like birding from a car, which is really important, and I want to come back to that. <laughs> And then, this is all on one page, and then you tell us the history about the egret, how it almost isn't around anymore. And you tell us why, and you go into great detail. But this is all in one page, and it's fabulous <laughs> stuff. So, Joan, thank you for writing this. Thank you for informing me so much in such a limited space. That's awesome. Yes. Um, I guess all those scientific papers that you have to keep it to a thousand words have honed my abilities. <laughs> yes. Okay. So now, the art and science of enjoying the birds in your own backyard. Now, I've never considered myself to be, in quotes, a birder. But many years ago, I realized there were lots of birds coming to my backyard and so I put up a bird feeder and it is just delightful every day I watch them I sit and drink some coffee and just watch all these wonderful birds of course I'm complete ignoramus so I don't know which is which and I guess I should have gotten your book early or one read <laughs> but I just wanted to ask you about people looking at birds in their own backyard birding in your own backyard it's such an interesting idea. And I wonder if I'm, I don't think I'm alone, but I think that most people possibly don't think of just sitting watching birds in their backyard as birding. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> I'd say we can call birding whatever we feel like, right? Okay. Um, yeah. There's a... Uh, yeah, there's there's lots of different ways that, that one can bird. But what about slow birding? And in the preface to your book, you tell us what you mean by slow birding. So could you tell my listeners what you mean by slow birding? So the title is a riff off of uh, Carlo Petrini's Slow Food Movement, which he started in the mid-80s um, in protest against fast food moving into Italy, which was a country that already had fabulous food. And his idea was, let's slow down. Let's enjoy what we have. Let's eat the heritage foods that, that we've always um, had here. We don't need American fast food. So I thought, ah, slow birding. And uh, 
we can do just the same. You know, if you if you run to the tropics and you log 200 new birds, what do you really know about them? How satisfying is it really? Well, it is fun. I won't deny that. But learning the stories about the birds that are right there all the time sharing this earth with us, to me, it's just so gratifying. And so I... I am an animal behaviorist. I know the ornithologists that told the stories well enough to have gotten some pretty amazing personal stories out of them. And I just thought it would be a lot of fun to, 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 to celebrate the very most common birds and to share their stories and also to encourage people to watch them themselves and, and maybe log them on eBird so that, we know more about them. And you've done it so well, Joan. And, and as I said right at the beginning, it, it, it's, this book is packed full of information. Were you, when you wrote the book and you were putting the book together, were you, think because you, you're, an, you're in academia, so were you thinking that you wanted to educate rather than generally inform? And I think there's a difference, isn't there, between just, or is there? Let me ask you. You know, my main goal in education is to give people the confidence to learn on their own because teachers are just, you know, a short time of life. And what we need to know is that we ourselves can learn that we, you know, for birds, my book tells some stories the, the Audubon societies in every community want to help you. The Cornell Lab of Ornithology, they have free apps. There's just so many people out there wanting to help you. So I I just want to tell people that, you know, they're great and they can count on themselves for slowly learning the birds right around them. And that's information we need. You taught me so much in your book, all these little details you tell me about birds and, and, and just their behavior. It, it, it's extraordinary because you watch birds and you think to yourself, oh, that's a bird and it's doing what it does. But you don't realize just how much there's going on there. Birds are, of course, fascinating, to, I, I presume, to all of us. They're strange little creatures in some respects, and I'm sure they must think that we're strange creatures as well. Do, do you have a favorite that you that just in in your backyard that that you, that you you watch? You know, I like all of them. I love to see the changes with the seasons. So it's uh, late in the year now, and we've got the uh, white-throated sparrows and the dark-eyed juncos have just arrived, and I love them. In the spring, I love the first uh, house wrens. But then I also love my loyal blue jays and cardinals and even the starlings and house sparrows that are there all year round. So, um, yeah, I like them all. Somebody that studies birds in in your profession, how do we know, what's the basis of of the learning? How do we know what they're doing and, and the reasons for doing it. Is, is this just like over a period of time that we have to study them? How, how does that work? 
So the first thing we do is we watch them and get a basic idea of where they are and what their biology is. Then the the next crucial thing we do is we put little bands on their legs or somewhere so we can identify individuals. That's really important. And then honestly, these days we just do take some blood, do paternity tests and find out all their dirty little secrets. <laughs> and, uh, you know, how, how, how philanderous most birds are. Uh, so, so really, you know, we, we band them. I, I spend a lot of time at a banding station and, you know, we can see if they have, uh, ticks or other parasites on them, but, uh, it really boils down to putting an individual band on them so you know that who the bird is. Let's talk about the philandering, and, and that seems to be an important part of your book, uh, the, the sex lives of birds. They do seem to have some quite a serious sort of adventures. Can you talk about that? So birds were always thought to be the model Victorian marriage of complete fidelity and hard work because the males are much better than most mammal males for also pitching in and caring for the young. But as an evolutionary biologist, animal behaviorist, we know that the males and females have their own interests and they may not coincide. So birds need the help of a male and they may pick the best male to help them and then mate with the male that they think will be the best genetic father for their babies. And likewise, the males are making the same choices. So some species are great philanderers, others others less so. And it's just one of the kind of great discoveries with the the revolution in DNA technology about 30 years ago that, that let us discover this about the birds. In reading your book, Joan, I started questioning myself about the lifespan of birds, particularly, obviously, the ones I see in my own backyard. Is that something that as somebody that studies birds, is that something that you that changes? Or I'm I'm just curious about the lifespan of the different species. It just I, I, I'm wondering, is there sort of something a marker that we can say that we know that they they're born, they they grow and then they die? Is 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 that just a sort of a, a like it is for us for humans? Is it is it the same equivalence? Their predation is such a huge part of bird life, um, diseases also, but, um, you know, there's, there's death all the way through the life cycle. So, um, some birds like house wrens and even starlings, you know, many of them die after one or two years of breeding. Yeah. Others will live for longer, um, it's a it's a sobering thought that watching these birds breed every year, having a bunch of babies, maybe breed twice, and yet in a stable population, one pair is only going to produce two young that actually make it. Um, some species are increasing, uh, 
Yeah, there's there's so much death, and it's just springtime. You see so many dead baby birds. Yes, yes, that's that's what I was getting at there. Something that I, I after reading your book made me think about. The other thing I was thinking, and you talk about in your book, is predators, but not just birds are the predators, but predators that prey on birds. Can you talk about the predatory birds? So the one I talk about in my book is the Cooper's hawk, and. Yes. Uh, it was such a fun bird to to write about because there's one person, Bob Rosenfield, who has spent his life on this one bird climbing thousands of times high into trees for a bird we almost lost because it was killed as a chicken thief, which it hardly was. And then DDT nearly wiped it out. And so it's just so fortunate that it's come back. Now, people see it as a predator on their beloved songbirds at the feeder, but I would say it's part of the natural cycle. It's it's the lion of the skies. So, again, getting back to the natural cycle, it, it, it does seem to me that's got to be almost daunting in some respects, as you say, for, for yourself as somebody that studies birds, because you, you're watching it closely. It's an intimate interest i guess and you do see this life cycle but there is this sort of this death as you say hanging over all the whole time let's talk about predators of birds i have roaming around in my backyard about four feral cats which i admit i have fed for a long long time they are ones one i call um mr grumpy because he really is quite a grumpy old cat He's still a feral cat, um, but I feed these things. But they don't seem to ever bother the, the birds that I see of. They seem to come and go, they eat the food, and then they disappear. But there are animals out there that are, I think, feasting on birds. Or am I just imagining that? The cats are eating the birds. Oh, cats, the cats are killing, yeah. you know, a billion birds a year. Cats yeah. are... Cats are feral cats are a huge problem. Uh, there's just, you know, I love cats. My daughter has cats. We had cats when the kids were little, but ours are strictly indoor cats oh, and, yes. and cats, cats outside kill birds. And even if you don't see it, they're, they're killing birds. They're killing nestlings. They're, yeah, they're huge That's predators. What- that's what they do. What about other animals? What about the other creatures I see roaming around, the, the raccoons and, and other other four-legged creatures? Raccoons, possums, even chipmunks. Um, yes, it's they, they all kill birds, and yeah. they kill the nestlings. Having shrubs in a yard or a garden is very uh, good for birds because they need somewhere for their young to go when they – come out of the nest, which they yeah. do absolutely as quickly as they can. Now, I live in southwest Florida, we're the middle of the state, uh, on the coast. Um, and I, I guess what I, I mean, there's lots of palm trees here and lots of tropical plants, etc. And sometimes I see when I'm driving around, I see, not in my backyard, but I see telephone poles with nests on top of them. Why do birds build their nests on top of telephone poles well they're great uh tree substitutes i'm that could be osprey maybe you have osprey nesting yeah, there yeah 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 yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I just I've always yeah. wondered about that because there's a lot of trees around, but there's a lot of palm trees, of course. Do do right. they nest? Do they nest in palm trees? Um, lots of birds nest in palm trees. I don't know if osprey nest in palm trees, but uh, you know, a, a telephone pole is a uh, an easily defensible structure. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so birds, so birds, yeah. and the birds that we see in our backyard when we're birding in our in our backyard. And I, by, by the way, I love I love the idea of birding in your own backyard, which is the subtitle: the art and science of enjoying birds in your own backyard. Well, let me remind my listeners: I'm talking to Joan E. Strassman. The title of her book is "Slow Birding." Great title. So, the birds that I see in my backyard, there's so many. This, and, and, but one of the things I love about it is is the sounds that they make the tunes the, the because sometimes it's not just it's not just songs it's just it's it's to me it's noises it's strange but a beautiful there's such a variety of noises can you can you talk about the birds that are in your backyard that make all these noise they're not just mating calls are they they're, they're something else um, a lot of it is mating or attracting mates, uh, and you've probably got lots of mockingbirds. You yes. may have the repetitive songs of the Carolina wren. Um, you've got doves that may form sort of a background noise. Um, I think it's really important to listen to the birds and to just kind of in your own mind think, categorize them, and then once you're comfortable with them, you can get the free Cornell Lab of Ornithology app called Merlin, turn it on sound, and it'll pick up the songs in your backyard. And then when a given bird is singing, it'll highlight its name in yellow. Oh, wow. What a great thing. Yes. What's that called again? It's called Merlin. Uh-huh. And it's it's free. It's from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology it's oh, just wow. fantastic. It's that so much inc- fun. That is incredible. Yes. Now, I live about 30 minutes away from the coast, from uh, the Gulf of Mexico. So every so often, I'll be drinking my coffee in the morning and listening to the birds. And all of a sudden, along will come a seagull. And he, or I say he, she, he, will always scare away the other birds that are around. Now, are seagulls normally coming inland like this? Or or am I just because of where I live, they just happen to sort of visit me? So there's some gulls that are are more, um, uh, that aren't just along the coasts. Yeah. So there's there's lots of different kinds of gulls, and you, you know gulls are predators. Gulls will take yes. eggs. Gulls, uh, yeah. So so the birds are probably yeah fleeing fleeing predatory gulls. I haven't seen that so much. So right. yes. that's interesting. Yeah. What about crows? Because crows look like they're predators. Are they? I, I'm not sure. I, you know. Everything at some level is going to be a predator. Let's face it. I mean, even so, yes, crows will eat will eat eggs, and they'll eat they'll eat anything they can catch. Yes. But you know, little house wrens, one of our tiniest little birds, um, they they will peck each other's eggs. You know, if if a female loses her nest and there's a nest box nearby, she'll go in there and stab the eggs and peck them and. 
Yeah. So, so yes, it's, it's, uh, Birds looking out for their own interests. Yes. You know, Joan, every so often I'm, I'm sitting looking at the birds at the bird feeder and all of a sudden will show up one that I think I've not seen before, particularly tiny, tiny little bird. And, I, and I'm always trying to think to myself, now, is that one that I've seen before or is it, is it a, a, a new one? Is it a new visitor? Could that be possible? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in migration season. Yeah. 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 Um, or it could be, yeah, a younger bird or a female. It's so common to first learn the males and then their colors are often brighter and more easily distinguished. So, yeah, it's 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 quite an art and a challenge to to be able to identify all the birds. And it's a journey that I am only part of the way along <laughs> well even though you're only part of the way along you give lots of advice and lots of tips and lots of, sort of a kind of like exercises of what to do at the end of each chapter on on a bird you you tell us um uh, for instance you say observe european starlings eating which is great a uh, great stuff because you, you don't think of these things but you did it and you've told us so let me ask you this about writing the book what was the 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 part where you said how much information should i put in which is based on my own history my own knowledge my own stories and how much of it should just be purely academic um yeah that was a struggle i uh badly did not want to write just an academic book yeah. and um i i just know that if you have story you have to you have to make the reader fall in love and they're yes. going to fall in love more quickly with stories with the scientists with the human side of things and that then maybe you can soften them up for for a, a few details so yeah so i i did not want to write an academic book um you're a good storyteller. You know that, don't you? Uh, I try. I care about it. No, but thank you. Really you. you really are. What was the one thing that you want people to take away from your book? I guess the one thing would be that we share this planet with a lot of amazing creatures. And let's not ruin it for them. Yes. Ah, such a good point. Joan E. Strassman is the author. The book is titled Slow Birding, The Art and Science of Enjoying the Birds in Your Own Backyard. It's a, as I said, right at the top, it's a charming read. It really is. And thank you so much for writing. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Joan, thank you for joining us at Life Elsewhere. Thank you. A very large thank you to my guests, Phil Allen Jr. and Joan E. Strassman. And a big thank you to you for listening. Do make sure that you let me know what you think of Life Elsewhere. My email address comes up in the closing credits, so make sure you jot it down. Till next time, be well, be safe, and as always, be nice. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. 
Behind the Scenes Assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Thank you.